1: Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to BadlandsFood.com slash Obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B A D L A N D S F O O dot slash Obscura. Listener do yourself a favor and check out Black Label Premium on the Apple Podcast app. You get access to all the premium content from my show that you can find on the Patreon, as well as premium content from all shows under the Black Label Premium banner. You're talking hundreds, if not thousands of hours of true crime content. And the best thing is, you can try our Black Label Premium for a week for free. If you like what you hear, you can keep supporting us. That's the Black Label Premium subscription on the Apple Podcasts app. All right, let's get on with it. Listener, the country of Belgium is one of the smallest yet most densely populated in Western Europe. Achieving independence back in 1830 and run as a constitutional monarchy, the country is bordered by France, the Netherlands, Germany, and the North Sea. Belgium is linguistically divided. To the north of the country in the area also known as Flanders, residents make up over half the country's population and speak Flemish, a variant of the Dutch language. This part of Belgium is typically working class, with a greater proportion of the country's agricultural and industrial areas, but has enjoyed an economic boom thanks to the service industry. In the south of the country, also known as Wallonia, residents speak French. This is around one-third of the Belgian population. A small population near the German border in the east of the country speak German. The capital city of Brussels, in the center of the country, is the nation's administrative and commercial center. It's also home to the European Union headquarters, as well as those of NATO. Unlike the rest of Belgium, Brussels is officially bilingual, but most residents tend to speak French. Administratively, Belgium is unique. As a federal state, governing power is distributed between each of the three major regions of the country. This poses complex jurisdictional challenges when it comes not only to governance overall, but law enforcement in particular. Being such a geographically compact country, Belgian towns and villages are small but charming, with no sense of pace or the hustle and bustle that characterizes other major European centers. The Gothic architecture evident in the many churches— Public buildings and castles is just one example of the country's rich cultural heritage. Belgium was generally known as a fairly safe place, especially for young people and children. Parents had always been confident that they could allow their kids out to play with friends using common sense, and that they'd make their way back home safely. Such was the cultural attitude in such a cosmopolitan and relatively relaxed country. But the story you're about to hear changed all that in the blink of an eye. Two months later, at the opposite end of the country, 17-year-old Anne Marshall and 19-year-old Ifya Lambrex went out for the evening while on a seaside holiday with a group of friends. On the 23rd of August, when the girls failed to return to their accommodation or make contact, the rest of their group knew something was very wrong. But when local police failed to take Anne and Ifeja's disappearance seriously, Their families knew they had a bigger problem on their hands. Their best efforts at tracking down their daughters were all to no avail. In the spring of 1996, 12-year-old Sabine Dardenne was riding her bike to school near the French-Belgian border. When Sabine failed to show up at school that day or return home, there were grave fears for her safety. Posters were distributed in the local area, and in police stations around Belgium, but no one had seen hide nor hair of Sabine. It wasn't until August that same year, when 14-year-old Leticia Del disappeared while walking home from her local swimming pool in southern Belgium, that things started to heat up in terms of a police investigation. Even though local police patrols around the country weren't aware of girls and young women who had gone missing in other parts of Belgium, one select police branch in the southern city of Charleroi did know not only that, but a specific suspect had been on their radar since the disappearance of Melissa and Julie. However, this hadn't been communicated to local investigating police at the time. Following tip-offs by witnesses who had noted part of a license plate on a white van in the area when Latisha was abducted, officers identified the man. Investigators decided to bring him in for questioning about Letitia's abduction. As they spoke to the man a horrifying story started to unfold. The identity of the man, his history, and what he had to tell police would rock Belgian law enforcement, the judiciary, and the very fabric of Belgian society and its people to the core for years to come in a way that no one could have ever expected. Now, let's get on with it. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Marc Dutroux was the eldest of five children, born in the Belgian municipality of Ixelles on the 6th of November, 1956, to his parents Victor and Janine. The couple were teachers, and soon after Mark was born the family relocated halfway across the world to what was then known as the Belgian Congo in Central Africa. Given the extreme state of political upheaval in the colony that resulted in the Congo crisis, Victor and Janine took their children back to Belgium after several years. They settled in the village of Obeix, near the city of Charleroi, in the south of the country. It wasn't necessarily the most ideal place for a young family. Charleroi had initially been established as a large urban commercial and industrial center, but it was also grimy, gray, and rough. In between derelict bars and pubs, Scrap metal dealers and car workshops were common. Over the years, Charleroi became a hotbed of crime and was known for its red-light district frequented by sex workers and clients alike. The city also developed a reputation as an international hotspot for car theft committed in cahoots with police in countries over the Belgian border. Things were said to be difficult at home for Mark, who later revealed that both his parents beat him on a regular basis. Victor and Janine both had domineering personalities, and the police were often called to the Dutru home in response to reports from concerned neighbors. On one occasion, Victor physically abused his eldest son while at school, while Mark's classmates watched on. In 1971, when Mark was 15 years old, his parents divorced. With no incentive to stay at home or even attend school anymore, Mark moved out. Not much is known about where Mark lived during this time, As he became a drifter. What is known is that he began associating frequently with a local pedophile whom he'd met while at school in Charleroi. To earn money, Mark became a sex worker for male clients. However, in 1974, this brought the 18-year-old to the attention of local police, as it was illegal in Belgium for men to engage in sex work with other men. By 1979, Mark had become a qualified electrician, but despite having a worthwhile trade that could have paved the way to a stable career, Mark instead engaged in petty crime, including theft, muggings, trading stolen vehicles, and drug dealing. The 23 year old received his first criminal conviction and was imprisoned as a result. Upon his release, Mark returned to Charleroi, where he became a frequent patron of the local ice rink. It was here in 1982 that 26-year-old Mark met 22-year-old Michelle Martin and the pair struck up a close friendship. But Mark didn't have skating on his mind when he visited the rink. He'd realized that the rink provided him not only with easy access to young girls and teenagers, but the opportunity to come to their quote-unquote rescue if they fell, especially when he accidentally tripped them over. Thankfully, Mark's ruse was soon discovered when the manager of the rink started receiving complaints that Mark was touching girls inappropriately, and he was banned. It soon became clear that Mark's prison sentence hadn't reformed the former juvenile delinquent, who soon escalated to being a sex offender. In June 1983, Mark and two other men were charged with raping and torturing a 50-year-old woman in her own home for three hours, until she told the trio where she hid her money. The survivor told police that during the ordeal, Mark inserted a razor blade into her vagina. Regrettably, the charges against Mark were dropped due to a lack of evidence that would result in a successful conviction, and he was free to go. In March 1985, 28-year-old Mark met a man by the name of Ja Van Petegem. Ja lived in the same area of Charleroi as Mark, with his wife and young child, following his retirement from military service. At the time, Mark had a caravan set up across the road from his house. This is where Ja moved in after leaving his wife. It wasn't long before Mark enlisted Ja in his campaign of petty crime. After committing several thefts, Mark decided it was time to be more daring. On the 7th of June, 1985, he and Ja abducted and raped an 11-year-old girl who was walking home alone from the local swimming pool. The girl had been there with her father and brother, but was walking home alone afterwards. Ja later told police, We drove past her in the car and I pulled her in by the waist. We put tape over her eyes and mouth. She was too young. I got out of the car, but I thought I should kidnap her because I owed something to Dutroux. The men tried to speak with an American accent to lead the girl to believe they were from out of town. They drove to a garage in Charleroi where Mark raped the girl and took a Polaroid photograph of her, claiming he would send it to a magazine in the U.S. Mark threatened the girl that if she told anyone what had happened, he'd kill her before dumping her near a Charleroi hospital. Mark decided to share the photo he'd taken with his friend Michelle Martin as proof of what he'd done. Just over four months later... On the 17th of October 1985, Mark abducted a 19-year-old woman from the town of Peron, Le Binche, just west of Charleroi, as she walked to a local shop. As the woman passed a van parked on the street, a man appeared to be urinating on a nearby wall. Suddenly, the man grabbed the woman and shoved her inside the van next to them. Before she knew what was happening, adhesive tape was pulled roughly over her eyes to obscure her view. Mark drove the woman to a house where she was raped. Ja had an alibi at the time of the assault and was outside Belgium driving a truck for an international freight company. The survivor claimed there was a second man involved who was balding and in his 50s. But despite their best efforts, police failed to find the accomplice. On the 14th of December, 1985, An 18-year-old first-year medical student living in a village south of Charleroi had told her parents she'd be traveling to her university in Brussels to study for an upcoming test she had the following week. The woman told her parents she'd be home the next day, but as the afternoon wore on, she became restless and studying lost its appeal. Packing up her things, she decided to take the train and bus home from Brussels. It was only a short walk from the bus station in her village to her home. The woman hadn't been walking for long after alighting from the bus when she sensed she was being followed. A dirty white van drove past the woman, but she observed it stop further up the road. Unbeknownst to the woman, inside the van were Mark, Ja, and Michelle Martin. A man got out and walked to the rear of the vehicle, perhaps checking something in the back. As the woman walked past, the van's rear door sprang outward, and another man pulled her inside while the other pushed her in, immediately placing adhesive tape over her eyes. The men tried to reassure the frightened woman that they only wanted her parents to pay a ransom of 400,000 francs to pay for surgery that a friend of theirs needed in the United States. During that time, they both raped her several times. The only food she received during her ordeal was apple juice and a chocolate bar. In between being assaulted, one of the men boasted to the woman that he'd studied law, Ja intimidated the woman by telling her he was "quote" part of a gang, led by two gang leaders, one of whom was a martial arts expert. The next day, Mark and Ja dropped the woman off near her home. For some reason, they felt the need to keep a trophy from the incident, taking the woman's pencil case. Mark had started to refine his M.O. By the time Ja and Michelle joined him on one of his excursions trawling for young women. Mark had already conducted reconnaissance and had someone specific in mind. This is exactly what happened only four days later on the 18th of December 1985, when Mark, Ja, and Michelle drove 20 minutes north of Charleroi to the municipality of Poiseuil. Around 7.30 a.m., Mark spotted a 15-year-old student riding her bike to school. The group abducted the girl, the men dragging her off her bike and into the van, blindfolding her with adhesive tape while Michelle drove. Arriving back at Mark's home in Charleroi, Mark stripped the girl before filming her naked and taking Polaroid photographs. He told the girl that her abduction and rape was to exact revenge on her father. Later that evening, the men returned her to Poe's dropping her off a few hundred meters from her home. Before they let the girl out of the van, the men gave her 500 francs, telling her to go get a note from the doctor for school. Just over a month later, on the 31st of January, 1986, Mark and some men who have still not been identified abducted another 18-year-old woman from the village of Obeix, where Mark had grown up. The woman had been walking along the footpath around 10.15 p.m. when the group pulled up beside her in Mark's vehicle, dragged her into the car, and covered her eyes with tape. This time, the men didn't wait to get back to Charleroi, They raped the woman in the vehicle at knife point while photographing her naked. In return for her traumatic experience, she was given chocolate and an apple. The group later dumped the woman on the side of the road for her to find her own way home. Ja didn't participate in this assault, but Mark boasted about it to him later. By now, there were five reports of serial rapes occurring under similar circumstances. Thanks to Ja's inability to keep his mouth shut during the assaults, he'd divulged sufficient information about himself to the survivors during the incidents, which led to police knocking on his door in February 1986. During a search of Ja's home, investigators had found the stolen pencil case belonging to the 18-year-old medical student. Ja confessed his involvement, also implicating Mark and Michelle. He also added another piece of incriminating information. He claimed that the first abduction and rape occurred back in May 1985, with two girls from the Moreland Veltz area on the outskirts of Charleroi. Unfortunately, these survivors were never identified, but Mark, Ja, and Michelle were all arrested in connection with the serial abductions and sexual assaults. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we navigate the complex narratives of true crime, it's clear that life's stressors, both big and small, can accumulate affecting our daily lives and mental health. It's important to have a space to voice these concerns, to unravel the personal mysteries we carry within us. Therapy offers a safe space to do just that. It's not only for moments of crisis, but for anyone aiming to foster better coping skills, set healthy boundaries, and ultimately thrive. BetterHelp facilitates this by providing online therapy that's tailored to your schedule making it both convenient and flexible. With BetterHelp, starting therapy is straightforward. Fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find your needs aren't being met, you can switch therapist at any time without any additional charges, ensuring you find the right fit for your journey. If you've been considering therapy or curious about how it can help, give BetterHelp a try. Take a moment visit betterhelp.com/obscura today to get 10% off your first month that's betterhelp h e l p.com/obscura take a moment to support your mental health in 1987 while 31-year-old mark was waiting for his case to go to trial the 30-year-old married a woman with whom he'd go on to have two children but it wasn't a happy union Mark was physically abusive towards his wife and was a philanderer, carrying on numerous affairs with different women, including Michelle. Mark's wife eventually discovered his infidelity, and the couple divorced. On the 26th of April, 1989, Mark, Ja, and Michelle were all convicted for abducting and raping the five girls and young women in 1985 and 1986. 32-year-old Mark was sentenced to 13 and a half years in prison. Ja received six and a half years, and Michelle was sentenced to five years. Mark would be serving more time, given his involvement in additional robberies and the 1983 sex attack. During their incarceration, Mark and Michelle married, and their union would produce three children in the coming years. Mark used his time in prison to his full advantage. He enrolled in higher education courses studying accounting, languages, and IT. But Mark was devious. He managed to convince prison health authorities that he'd developed a mental illness, which entitled him to claim financial assistance from the government totaling around $1,200 per month. He also claimed to have such severe sleeping issues that he was prescribed strong sedative medication. But Mark didn't really have either of those health concerns. While Mark was imprisoned, he received some sad and shocking news. Available information suggests that Ja had been released from prison early, his newfound freedom would be cut short. In August 1991, Ja was killed in a moped accident when he ran a red light and collided with a bus. Strangely, though, Mark wasn't particularly upset. He took the news with stoicism and seemed apathetic about his former friend's demise. In April 1992, 35-year-old Mark, received some good news. He was to be released after serving only three years of his sentence on the basis that he demonstrated good behavior. It was usual practice in Belgium at this time for many convicted criminals, including sex offenders, to only serve a third of their sentences before being eligible for release. However, this recommendation flew in the face of the advice of the public prosecutor who had helped put Mark away. The forensic psychiatrist who had examined Mark following his conviction was also adamant that he would remain a serious danger to the community. Despite these concerns, Mark was released and reunited with Michelle, whom it's understood was also free by the time Mark walked out of the prison gates. It was also in 1992 that Mark bought a property in the Charleroi suburb of Marcinelle at auction for cash, and this is where he and Michelle made their home. Mark continued to purchase properties throughout the 1990s, including a farmhouse in the town of sars to the southwest of Charleroi. But these homes weren't salubrious by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, most of them sat vacant for prolonged periods in between being leased out to tenants. With his former accomplice, Jean now dead, Mark attracted a new associate, 21-year-old Michel Lelievre, lived with his mother on the eastern outskirts of Charleroi. Like Mark, Liliev had acquired a criminal record for petty offenses from an early age, partly thanks to his dependency on drugs. He also had a cocaine trafficking conviction. The two men started spending time together. In 1994, Mark acquired a firearms license for a semi-automatic rifle. That same year, he gained another associate, 42-year-old Frenchman Bernard Weinstein. Mark met Bernard when the man repaired one of Mark's many vehicles, which included two trucks, a motorcycle, his caravan, a white Renault van, and two cars, including a Citroen. Bernard, too, had a criminal record for robbery and assault offenses committed in France. But this didn't stop Mark leasing out his property in the Charleroi suburb to his new friend. Despite being a qualified electrician, a job that should have made it relatively easy for Mark to find work, By 1995, the convicted sex offender was out of a job. Unable to secure gainful employment, Mark soon found that it was more lucrative to focus solely on continuing to trade stolen vehicles from Slovakia and the Czech Republic in Eastern Europe. Eight-year-old Melissa Russo lived with her parents, Gino and Karine, and her older brother in the city of Liege. Gino worked at a steelworks while Karine was a stay-at-home mother. She later described their family life as idyllic, telling the French newspaper, Libération. Quote, Our happiness was almost cliché. I was happy to be a stay-at-home mom. I pitied the women who were forced to work. My concern was to make the world the best it could be for my children. We never went on vacation, but had our little house built out of red brick. On the 24th of June, 1995, Melissa and her eight-year-old friend, Julie Lejeune, went for a walk to a neighborhood park. Julie lived with her parents, JaDenis, Louisa, and her younger brother. There was no reason for the girls to run away or wander off with someone they didn't know. So when they failed to return home, they were reported missing to local police. Their parents issued tearful appeals on national TV for whoever had taken their daughters to return them unharmed. Julie's mother Louisa said, Quote, "'Julie, my darling, I did not tell you enough that I love you. "'You are loved. We will wait for you. "'We hope with all our hearts to find you soon.'" Corrine pleaded, quote, "'Melissa, my little daughter, my treasure, "'if you can hear me, I want you to know that your mom, your dad, your brother, "'all the family, all your friends do nothing now since you left, "'except try to find and wait for you. "'We are all thinking of you very, very much.'" An extensive flyer campaign was organized by the Rousseau and Lejeune families, In the search for the girls, their smiling pictures stuck to car windows and lampposts. But by mid July, only weeks after they disappeared, the investigation seemed to grind almost to a halt. The desperate families hired their own private investigator to try to make some headway, where it seemed local law enforcement couldn't. When the investigator later retraced the girls' steps, it was believed that Melissa and Julie had likely walked through the park to a flyover near their neighborhood so they could wave at the passing traffic on the motorway below. What happened next was anyone's guess. A few weeks later, a man decided to contact the police in response to appeals for information about the missing 8-year-olds. The man had confided in a friend that he had spotted Melissa over the border in Holland after she'd been abducted. The man was on his way to the police station to speak with officers about Melissa's disappearance when he fell in front of a train and was killed. A month later in August, seventeen-year-old Anne Marshall was excited. She was about to head off on her first holiday to the northwest coastal town of Westend in the north of the country with her friends, unsupervised. Anne's parents, Paul and Betty, understandably had reservations but in the end they agreed to allow Anne to go. After all, she was nearly eighteen and would be going with one of her closest friends, nineteen-year-old Ifya Lambrex. The girls had both grown up in the north Belgian province of Hasselt. Like Anne, Ifya had one sibling and grew up with her parents, Ja and Rochelle. The girls set off on their holiday, and on the evening of the 22nd of August, Anne and Ifya rode their bikes to the West tram stop. There, they caught the light rail to attend a hypnotist show at the casino in the nearby town of Blankenberch. During the show, the pair were lucky enough to be selected to go on stage and be hypnotized by the illusionist. The performance ended without incident, and the girls left the casino, being captured on CCTV at 11.30 p.m., walking through the foyer towards the exit. The last tram back to Westendy departed at 11.44 p.m., but Ann and Ifya missed it. It's not known why, but the girls didn't leave Blankenberts until the last tram out for the evening altogether, departing at 12.44 a.m. This tram, though, was headed towards Ostend, a 25-minute drive away from Westend, where it arrived at 1.18 a.m. and the girls alighted. But when Ann and Ifye's friends awoke the next day, the girls weren't home. Concerned, They set out looking for their friends. They discovered the girls' bikes at the tram stop where they'd left them the previous evening, but there was no sign of An or Ify. Now extremely worried, the group contacted their parents as well as the Marshalls and the Lambrecks. Understandably, the girls' parents were frantic, but when their disappearances were reported to local police, the families were dismissed. Officers reassured them not to worry saying that Ann and Ify must just be quote out having a good time. Ann's parents in particular knew that it was entirely out of character for their daughter to not make contact. They were also extremely troubled by the relaxed attitude of local law enforcement. The families resigned themselves to the fact that if any progress was to be made in tracking down Ann and Ify, they would need to spearhead it themselves. As far as West Enda local police were concerned, there was no need to appeal for help from the public by arranging a reenactment of the last evening on and F. U. were seen. Thanks to assistance from a private organization, the Marshall and Lambrex families distributed thousands of flyers across Belgium, and also into the Netherlands and even into Great Britain. The girls' pictures could be seen in shop windows everywhere, even stuck to trees. As the families conducted further inquiries they discovered that the driver of the last tram to Ostend was certain he saw the girls aboard that night. Another man who was finishing night shift in the area claimed he saw Ann and Ify around 1.20 a.m. All the while, it appeared that no one in law enforcement had made a connection between the disappearances of Julie and Melissa with that of Anne and Ify. On the face of it, two separate perpetrators could have been responsible. Melissa and Julie were only eight years old and had disappeared from the southeast of Belgium, while Anne and Ifia were young women who were last seen on the northwest coast, a a two-and-a-half-hour drive away at the opposite end of the country. But there was another complicating factor. In 1995, Belgium had three separate police authorities. At the top of the food chain was the judicial police, who were attached to the offices of the public prosecutors next down the line were federal police also known as the national gendarmerie local police forces made up the final part of belgium's law enforcement structure instead of working collaboratively these three authorities not only operated independently but actively distrusted each other and regularly withheld information from each other even if a serious crime was being investigated this resulted in conflict between agencies and instead of a collegiate culture of cooperation, there was a strong element of divisiveness and competition. It was against this backdrop that the disappearances of Melissa, Julie, Anne, and Ifeje occurred. A few weeks after Anne and Ifye's disappearance, police conducted a cursory search of the northwest Belgian coast, and even traveled as far afield as Spain, but found nothing. One police officer who had been working on investigating Melissa and Julie's abductions had called for the scope of police inquiries to be broadened. Sadly, the same month Anne and Ifji disappeared, the officer was found dead, having been killed by a gunshot to the head. His death was ruled as a suicide. 12-year-old Sabine Dardenne lived with her parents Guy and Yvette, and sisters in the city of Cain in the Wallonie region of Belgium. Sabine was born in the nearby city of Tournai and went on to attend school there, close to the French-Belgian border. Like many children, Sabine rode her bike to and from school. On the 28th of May, 1996, she left the family home on her bike as usual, but Sabine never made it to school. Her parents reported her missing to the police, but there were no meaningful leads in the days and weeks following her disappearance, despite a missing persons unit being established. As the days passed, hope was fading that Sabine would be found, but the police would soon feel the pressure. 14 year old Letitia Delez lived with her mother Patricia and sister Sophie in the village of Bertry in the south of Belgium. Letitia's parents had not long been divorced when, on the 9th of August, Almost two and a half months after Sabine Dardenne's disappearance, Leticia and Sophie went to the local swimming pool. They arrived around 7.30 p.m., and after a refreshing dip to relieve the summer heat, Letitia told her sister and a friend around 8.45 p.m. that she was going to walk home. 10 p.m. came and went, and Letitia hadn't returned, so her family and friends raised the alarm. Scores of locals took to the streets to help Letitia's family search for their missing loved one. Leticia's father had been eliminated as a suspect in her abduction by this stage, and as with the earlier disappearances, posters went up across Belgium and throughout neighboring countries. The National Gendarmerie provided a helicopter to assist in the search, as firefighters, charities, and community volunteers gave their time to search for the latest missing teen. But this time, unlike the previous abductions, there was a breakthrough— Two witnesses contacted police only days into the investigation, advising that on the evening of Letitia's disappearance, they'd observed a suspicious-looking white Renault van in the area. The witnesses were also able to provide part of the license plate. When police ran the partial plate through the system, they found that the van was registered to 39-year-old Mark Dutroux. They also found his full criminal record, most notably his previous convictions for serial abduction and rape, ten years earlier. On the 12th of August, three days after Letitia was last seen, the Charleroi National Gendarmerie called Mark in for questioning. They also decided to interview his wife, Michelle, and 25-year-old associate, Lelievre. But Mark refused to cooperate with investigators, so officers set to work over the following days, interrogating Michelle and Lelievre. It worked. The pair eventually confessed to abducting Leticia under Mark's instruction, but gave no indication whether she was alive or dead. In a race against time, officers took this information back to Mark, advising him he'd been implicated and asking him what he knew. It was then that he dropped a bombshell. Mark calmly told the police he wouldn't just give them Letitia. He had another girl, too. Investigators were genuinely shocked. There was another? When asked who it was, Mark gruffly gestured towards a missing persons poster on the wall of the interview room. It was Sabine Dardenne. He hadn't even been a suspect in her disappearance. Mark, Michelle, and Lelievre were charged with abducting Letitia. When investigators arrived at Mark's home in Marcinelle on the 15th of August, he led them down to the cellar. Behind a section of concrete wall which had been crudely fashioned into a door was what could only be described as a dungeon. The door was open. Inside, two shelves on the rear wall held a portable TV and some bottles. It was squalorous at best. Huddled under a blanket on filthy bedding on the floor were Sabine and Letitia. Mark instructed both girls to come to the door that led into the cellar, but they initially refused, terrified. When Mark told the girls that the men accompanying him were police officers, they still hesitated. Not knowing if they should trust Mark, Sabine and Letitia eventually made their way towards the door. Sabine asked if she could take some clothes and her colored pencils. Letitia asked to bring a bottle of perfume. Both girls thanked Mark, and as they walked out of the cellar, kissed him on the cheek. They were immediately taken to the police station. Letitia had been imprisoned for six days, while Sabine had endured 79 days of the same horror. After the girls and Mark were separately escorted from the property in waiting police cars, investigators commenced a search of the house. Under the carpet, they found around 30 letters Sabine had written to her family. The girls were reunited with their families. It was a miracle that they'd come home. Police immediately arranged to search Mark's other properties where they found hundreds of commercial adult pornographic videos, along with numerous homemade adult films that Mark had made with Michelle. In the coming days and weeks, the terrible story behind the abductions of all six girls would be laid bare, as physical evidence was uncovered, and Michelle and Leliev elaborated on their own versions of events. But not Mark, who only cooperated as much as he felt he needed to. The full and hideous account of events, drawn from police records, witness and survivor evidence, and confessions, would leave Belgians and the world aghast. And next episode, you will get a fully researched bird's eye view of this evidence, this evil. If you're listening to the Patreon, you'll have this episode tomorrow. Things are going to get dark. Listener, be prepared for the atrocity exhibition. It's not going to be for the faint of heart. Thank you for listening and keep the fire burning.